Close Horse is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Picnic wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and dead stock textiles. Picnic wear strives for minimal waste, but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnic wear on Instagram at Picnic wear, and that's wear, W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No flight back vintage, bringing fun new life to old things always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at NoFlightBackVintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room. All while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. And that's Gabriella with one L. Gotta get that spelling right. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios. 
all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. For the month of August, St. Evans is supporting the Women's Prison Association, empowering women to redefine their lives in the face of injustice and incarceration. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evans. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom-and-pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul, and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl, or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country.
Republica Unicornia Yarns, handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed, made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at Republica underscore Unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Welcome to Clothes Horse, the podcast that never thought I would talk about H&M as much as I do now. Seriously, I hadn't thought about H&M for so long, and now I talk about H&M like every other day. What the heck? <laughs> I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 95. Wow. Today's guest is Garrick, the founder of Eco Stylist. He'll be explaining to you in a lot more detail about what Eco Stylist does. But if I were going to give you the like 10 cents version of it, okay, maybe 25 cents version of it, I guess I would say that Eco Stylist makes it easier to shop for sustainable and ethical brands and know that you're truly shopping sustainable and ethical brands because Eco Stylist does all of the background checking for you. Which means, of course, that Garrick and his team, with the help of Remake, have to decipher and filter out a ton of greenwashing. So Garrick is an expert on greenwashing. And when he reached out to me and said, you know, it would be fun to talk about greenwashing together, I was very excited. Because there are so many ways in which Brands confuse us into giving them our money by offering us this illusion, maybe even a delusion, that they are doing something great for the planet and its people. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did as a, you know, an aspiring greenwashing detective. I don't know. Maybe I'm already there. Maybe I'm officially a greenwashing detective. This is a longish episode. You know, I thought about cutting it in half and I was like, why? Just give it all at once. And then you know what? If you want to take a break halfway through, that's what you should do. There is a podcast that I listen to. It's called Mother May I Sleep With Podcast. It's about lifetime movies. I love it. I um, have seen almost none of the movies they talk about. doesn't matter. Those episodes are two, three, four hours long. And what I do is I stretch them over a couple days and it's really enjoyable. So this episode's going to be a little bit more than two hours. Maybe you want to do that. All right. Well, there's a lot to talk about, obviously, so let's just jump right in. Garrick, why don't you introduce yourself to everyone? Yeah. Hi, I'm Garrick Heimbaugh. I'm the founder of EcoStylist, which is the go-to resource for stylish and ethical clothing. And I'm really happy to, to be here on your podcast. I'm happy to have you here. We're going to talk about one of my favorite things to get riled up about, which is greenwashing. (laughs) 
but first I thought, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Because I know, because I've already heard the story, but nobody listening has. How did you end up starting EcoStylist? Yeah, it's a been an interesting journey. Uh, definitely not one that's like linear or predictable really <laughs> in any way. Like it's, I'm not, it's not totally. like, oh, when I was five, I, I knew I was going to start a sustainable fashion business. Um, <laughs> you didn't? What? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it's, um, yeah. So for me, I actually had no idea I was going to be doing this. I, I guess I would say that it started with my quarter life crisis. Honestly, when I, when I was 25, I kind of hit, I hit like what was a personal rock bottom for me um, where I was just, you know, I had gone to college for peace studies, essentially, and uh, we had studied abroad in Liberia. And so I was pretty passionate about wanting a job that had, you know, an impact, uh, a positive mm-hmm. impact in the world. And reality didn't align with that when for me when I got out there. Um, and it's not that obviously that, you know, you can there's jobs that, where you can have an impact and everything. But I wasn't I, you know, I wasn't able to find one off the bat. Um had a lot of trouble in the DC job market where everybody has a master's degree and I wasn't ready to go to grad school. So, uh, so I ended up in finance and I wasn't for me. It just wasn't for me. I wasn't <laughs> passionate about it, um, but I kind of like, you know, used hobbies and things to, uh, uh, for me as like an escape. So I mm. was always learning outside of work and like, I like ran like a productivity blog and, uh, worked on cars and, um, like I did try like all these side businesses. I was doing all these things to keep myself occupied. And then I just hit rock bottom and where I was like, wow, I don't like anything about my life. And so I, <laughs> um, yeah, so I literally like, I moved, quit my job and changed my phone number, like in the same, like, I don't know, like Whoa. one month period. <laughs> yeah. And I did like a total reset and like, I know that sounds really drastic, but that's, that's actually what I did. And, um, and then yeah, I just felt like I needed to change, like a big one. And um, yeah, that kind of started me on the journey of, of changes. And then I started making changes faster after that because I was like, you know, this next job in Pittsburgh wasn't really for me either. It was cool. But like, um, so from there, I ended up in grad school uh, for business. I figured like at that point, I was interested in social entrepreneurship and I figured, you know, business and peace studies, like kind of a good combination. Mm-hmm. So I had some idea, but I still thought I was going to go work for a company for a few years. Um and I started a fashion startup on the side while I was in grad school. And it wasn't actually ethical or sustainable in the beginning. And then I, I met the founder of an ethical brand, which led me down a rabbit hole of research. This was like four or five years ago. Um, and that was the the impetus for me to be like, you know what, if I'm going to start a fashion startup, uh, I don't want to do like, I don't want to support, you know, Amazon and ASOS. Like I want to help people discover really cool brands like this that are doing, you know, really good things for people on the planet. So, um, and make it easy to find things from those brands that are stylish. Right. Cause I think the problem mm-hmm. for me when I got into sustainable fashion is, you know, I was like, it just took so much time to find the brands. And I felt like people who don't love style or shopping like I do, aren't going to like spend, you know, hundreds of hours, like, you know, uh, so I was like, can I make this easier for other people? Um, and so three years ago uh, was the official start of EcoStylist. There was like, obviously there was pre-work before that, but uh, yeah, EcoStylist started three years ago. Um, started to, we started with just focusing on men because we wanted to help. Uh, we saw that as an unfilled niche in the sustainable fashion mm-hmm. space, um, but we Definitely. since brought in to be a resource for everyone. That's amazing. So uh, why don't you explain a little bit more about what EcoStylist does? Because I feel like you... 
you are offering a very unique service out there and that you are taking the vetting that we can get from places like Remake or Good On You, but you're also connecting with brands. Um, And I think I love that because a lot of people reach out to me all the time and they're like, where should I shop? What should I do? And I'm like, well, that's like not really my wheelhouse, but here are all the people who've done all this work already. But I think people get discouraged because they're like, okay, so you're telling me I have to go to one website to look for this, to get a list of where I should shop. Then I have to go to each of those brands' websites to look for things. And it's just, it's a lot of work, right? Uh, I mean, comparatively, you know, it would be way more work if you you had to get in your car and drive to all these places. But I think people get (laughs) discouraged by that. So how do you screen brands for this? Yeah, no, absolutely. That's That's a great point, Amanda, because it's, it can be a lot of work, not just on the research side, like you said. So what we've, what EcoStylist really is, is a, is a resource for stylish mm-hmm. and ethical fashion. We've, we've tried to, we've, well, we've not tried, we've, we've built a variety of, of tools to help make that process easier for people. So at the core is our, is like, which I'll, I'll yeah, I'll get to our brand ratings. Um, but that's, that's at the, at the core, we, we have vetted brands that, uh, where it's just like, it's just a list of good brands. So it's like, if you want to find brands that are stylish and sustainable, that are great. Here's a list of them that have all been vetted. Um, mm-hmm. And so we have that, that's kind of our core resource. We also have a blog, a uh, very active blog. So tons of content there, which can help, you know, if you're looking for, you know, ethical underwear brands or, you know, ethical streetwear brands or whatever it is, you know, we can address different topics in our blog. Uh, and then we've kind of like, as a kind of really as a true startup, we've pivoted a lot in our journey. So we've, we've experimented too with services. So in order to kind of like you're saying, make it easier for people, you know, we have a marketplace as well on the site where we curate items for folks. We also do personal styling. Um, like we have personal stylists on our team who uh, you can, you know, you can book a, a virtual call with them and they'll do the shopping for you. So you don't even have to like know the brands in that case, you know, wow. um, they're That's like awesome. your ethical personal shopper. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we test. So we yeah, essentially we're we're kind of constantly testing things to see how we can make that journey easier for people, and yeah, and working on what's the best way to do that is, and while also obviously being sustainable. Um, like we weren't super keen, you know, right away to jump into like services like say a box service or something because we were like, well, if we're going to do that, you know, we want to do it in a way that's sustainable. Um, so we've just yeah, we've just really put a lot of thought behind like kind of trying to find that intersection of like how do we help people, but in a way that's you know, that's aligned with our values. Um, but so to so the brand ratings, yeah. So we partnered with Remake actually. And so our brand research is all powered by Remake. Um, and it was just, just, it was the right move. We believe their criteria is the best out there. We used to have our own criteria in the beginning for, you know, determining if brands are ethical and sustainable. Um, and then, you know, uh, I met the founder of Remake at a conference and, you know, she had a vision that we could do more together if we, if we collaborate and, you know, and honestly, and their criteria was just more better. It was better developed than ours was. And it just made a lot of sense. I was like, you know what? I, I believe in their criteria. I think this is the definition of sustainable that I want to put forward, right? Because that's, if you talk mm-hmm. about what makes a brand sustainable, you have to define that. And I, I like their definition, which is, you know, very much uh, is, you know, 50-50 in people and the environment. And yeah, I wanted to help promote that and put that forward. So yeah, so all our research is powered by their criteria. Um, and, you know, it's really thorough. And brands have to earn every point they get. And it's, uh, yeah, that's kind of how we, how we do the research. 
That's great. That's great. So to be clear, just for people who are listening, like you are not a store. You don't own this inventory. Basically, you're you're connecting people in a much easier, streamlined interface with brands that are sustainable and ethical. So you're not like it's not you're not a store. I guess I'm just you know because that can be confusing for some people. It was really obvious to me looking at your site, but I also work in that industry. So I like knew that you weren't like a boutique that was stocking all the stuff and shipping it off to people. Exactly. Yeah, no, we're a resource. And yeah, and that gives us, like I said, a lot of flexibility to, to figure out the best ways we can, you know, we can serve our users and help them help them find stylish and sustainable clothes. Um, yeah, because we're not it's not we're not limited. We don't it's not just like sell, 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 or we, yeah, we don't have inventory. It's it's just it's just finding the right tools using technology. And so um, yeah, so we, we, we have 50, like 57 brand partners at the moment. Um, wow. but that's going to be close to a hundred by the end of the year. Uh, we have, or, or we have a bunch of brands that will be, uh, launching here soon. Um, so yeah. That's amazing. I think this is great because right now for many people, it seems so challenging to make sustainable and ethical decisions because as we're going to talk about in this episode, the greenwashing is so confusing. It's really hard, unless you've made this your life's work or can make it your life's work, to figure out where to shop, right? It's just like so hard. I'm sure you encounter all kinds of greenwashing all the time. Um, so we're going to break that down. Uh, we're going to give you the signs of greenwashing. Sign number one is using words that aren't actually measurable. And I wanted to ask you, Garrick, what is your favorite word that has been destroyed by greenwashing? Mm, there's so many. <laughs> so many, so I know, many. I know. So many of these words. I know, they're, they're so terrible. Like green, I mean, that one I still see. I feel like green was like one of the early greenwashing terms. Like just mm-hmm. put green on it and people will think it is. And you're like, this is a bottle of Clorox, you know. Um, but green is one that I still see out there all the time. Like you you can't measure the greenness of a product unless we're really talking about the color green, which in that case, sure. So green is a classic example of uh, a greenwashing term. Yes. Yeah. Green. Um, some other favorites of mine would be, well, conscious, um, (laughs) thinking of, thinking of a certain brand's conscious collection, Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. sustainably is, is, is one that's like where brands will say, uh, especially like brands like Zara and H&M will do this, where it will be, they'll make these claims that something is like, quote, like more sustainably made and they don't elaborate on that (laughs) at all. I know. And then you're like, okay, okay, cool. Sold. You know, I think, it's unfortunate, like the word sustainable, sustainably, all of this, these, this, all of the words related to that have been just destroyed. Like they have no meaning anymore because they're being tossed around kind of willy nilly. Um, there's such a buzzword. I mean, sustainability is like what I see constantly, like in every industry publication of like sustainability is the hot new trend. And I'm like, no, 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 that's. That's that's not make. I mean, I want it to be a trend and that people care more, but let's let's not make it a fashion trend, you know, because then it loses all meaning. And and believe it or not, sustainable sustainably isn't something that you can actually measure, which means it's not a provable claim. And I was telling 
telling you, Garrick, as we were preparing for this episode about this really depressing article that I'd read last week that's from about a year ago, maybe two years ago, and talked about how basically when it comes to research into sustainability, as in actual like scientific research and innovations into the impact of the fashion industry or any other industry on this planet and, you know, ways in which it could be better, you know, research into innovations to make these industries actually more sustainable. Well, no one wants to fund that because it's not a very glamorous story. And so a majority of the sustainability research being done right now in this world, specifically when we talk about fashion, is being funded by places like H&M and other big industry players. So they're kind of paying for the type of research that they would like to see that will basically create marketing talking points. I mean, that is, I know that sounds like so tinfoil hat conspiracy theory, but unfortunately that's the reality because unless governments start dumping money into this kind of research, scientists who care about this stuff are at the mercy of these brands. That's the only pr- the, that's where the money's coming from right now. So it's really great because it creates metrics that these brands can use to promote their products to make them seem sustainable. And you sent me an article. Um, wait, let me open it up here with the title: "60 percent of sustainability claims made by fashion giants are greenwashing," which is really really depressing. Uh, and, and true. I mean, actually, I don't know about you, but I thought the number would be a lot higher than 60%. Yeah, I, I think it's that definitely speaks to the the uh, the broadness of brands in which they they looked at. Because like some of the brands in that study were, it was like 80% of their yeah. claims, you know. Um, our H&M was 96%. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> I know. 96% of the claims that they made were greenwashing. ASOS and Marks and Spencer came in at 89%. And in just general, that like fast fashion bucket of retailers came in around 88%. So really, really high. Basically, it's like you can't believe much that you're reading or hearing. Yeah. And I just want to jump in. You're absolutely right about the the research. It's because most of it is funded by uh, by brands who exactly who are partaking in, in fast fashion, you know, and unsustainable practices, which is obviously a conflict of interest. And governments around the world have shown very little interest in this, right? Like mm-hmm. the U.S. government, yeah. um, you know, even in California, right, we're we're struggling to to you know to pass a bill that will you know ensure a fair wage for for workers. Um, not saying that won't happen. I'm just saying like the but you know but it's requiring work, and and so it's like yeah, and governments aren't really, and even you know even in places like you know like like the U.K. where you you maybe think. Um, sustainable fashion is a little has made a little more progress in in the public mind you know they have trouble getting legislation passed so yeah the governments aren't there and i think uh in academia i think it's new like i actually have had quite a few people in academia and like professors reach out to me you know over the last three years um but i get the sense that all of them are in relatively new positions in terms of like where they're teaching sustainable fashion right like that's new to have sustainable fashion in an academic setting. And so like, I think re- the good news there, though, is research will be coming, I'm sure, you know, having academics, but like the whole idea of, of academics being in that discipline um, and that focus is, is, I think is very new. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think a lot of retailers are realizing that this, I mean, this is the hot trend, right? Uh, that they need to start speaking to it. And so recently I've seen 
a lot of jobs popping up on LinkedIn that are are like sustainability managers for a lot of big fast fashion retailers. And the job descriptions are always really interesting because for one, the retailers don't really know what they're doing. And two, I hope that they understand realistically that they cannot undo everything they've done so far and and rebrand as sustainable and change all their practices. Like it would mean totally dismantling their entire companies. Um, and so instead, a lot of these job descriptions are really focused on like making the campus more sustainable, like getting people to use less mm. paper and switching light bulbs and charitable giving. And it's, it's just, I see how it's a smokescreen. You know, I look at some of the companies who uh, – you know, everybody's got their um, sustainability, corporate responsibility pages going these days. And some of them are filled with really elaborate claims and videos and imagery that are no doubt mostly greenwashing and others are just so like silly. Like we, we hand out reusable bags and we use LED lighting in our warehouse. And you're like this, I mean, I guess it's, it's a baby step, but like at this, at the level this company is, it should be so much more, Right. No, 100%. I think some of the most infuriating examples of that, which uh, which are, I think this is like a step beyond greenwashing, but this would, would be like uh, Dow Chemical and, and Shell Oil, you know, putting out um, paid ads as well as putting uh, out on their social media, these like quizzes where it's like, learn how to reduce your personal environmental impact. I know. And it's like, are you, I'm sorry, but are you like kidding me? Like how, how like to have the, how could they possibly put the onus like on us as individuals when those companies have massive environmental footprints. Um, I mean, the audacity of it really exactly. <laughs> it's yeah. ridiculous, but it is, I think that that, I mean, I, I'm glad to see that more and more people are seeing through that. I see a lot of social media content around that. Like why are the oil companies telling us it's on us to change this? But at the same time, I think we're not seeing like the general public doesn't see the fashion industry in the same way and they should because even these brands with their so-called conscious collections are really putting the psychological responsibility of sustainability on their customers because if they weren't if they were saying you know we're going to own up to this we're going to change our ways well their entire collection everything they sold would be conscious they would stop selling so much stuff and pay their workers and all of these other things but they're not doing that. You know, it's it's like a it's a complete lack of sincerity and authenticity, really. And so some of these other words that they love to throw out there are eco-friendly. Another thing, I mean, what does that even mean? Right. Um, natural is another favorite. Um, because isn't everything really in one way or another kind of natural? <laughs> it's all organic matter somehow. Um, recyclable or recycled is also just, I mean. We've done previous episodes about how, unfortunately, we've all been wishfully recycling for a really long time. But I don't care if the garment I'm wearing was somehow made of a recycled material because if it's not going to be recyclable after I, I'm done with it, which it probably mm. isn't. Um, and another one that you and I, which we can talk about more later, is uh, I don't know if th this is a little bit greenwashing. This is a lot ethical washing, which is made in the USA. Mm. Uh, maybe one of the most egregious ones, actually, <laughs> um, because it uh, implies this idea that if it's made in the United States, it's better for the people and the planet. And that is, in most cases, just not true. Yes. 
Yeah, no, those are all great. A, a couple that I would add would be that I've seen a lot of greenwashing around would be, um, well, like so, sustainable fabrics would be one, honestly, where it's it, it uh. really it really matters what is being used, right? Because a brand like, uh, and the thing is, I think what we're, we're really getting at here is like a lot of basically there's just tons of greenwashing because the you know the industry and the terms aren't regulated, and so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so sustainable fabrics that was a huge one. Like brands like H and M will say, you know, more than we're going to have like 100% of our collection be like more, quote unquote, like more sustainable fabrics by X year. And the thing is like, the problem is how do they define that? And you know, the, 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 where it gets problematic is they define that as like what they're talking about, the vast majority of their collection they're talking about there is um, they're talking about converting to BCI cotton, right? Better cotton mm-hmm. initiative, which is a step in the right direction. Um, but it's just interesting because like that would rank, you know, less good than obviously like organic cotton or like, or, you know, regenerative cotton or I don't know, a variety of other, so it's like it's not it's not like the best. It's like a step in the right direction, but it's not like the best step. And there's you know, and they're just kind of using that. But it, it's it gets worse though because they're also when they say sustainable, more sustainably made fabrics, they're sometimes they're even talking about like polyester, for example, mm-hmm. um, because mm-hmm. they've you know they've used data from you know like the Higg index that suggests that polyester has like a better you know um, I forget what it ranks better than, but and, and it's it's a it's um it, the problem with that is it's a snippet of data, right? Obviously, virgin polyester is terrible; it derives from oil. And the thing is, um, I believe if I remember this correctly, the problem with that data point is that it doesn't take into account the full life cycle of the fabric, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's only yeah. it's only a sn- snippet of the fabric's um, lifespan, right? And, and and you're here you're talking about a fabric that's not biodegradable, um, you know, that's derived from oil. Uh, that sheds micro uh, microplastics. So, you know, and then you have H&M like considering that to be like a more sustainable option. So um, that's one, I think, you know, radical transparency, not to hit on that particular brand, but I think that term- <laughs> We will, we will be. <laughs> that term has been, yeah, that term has been ruined um, because obviously when we talk about, tra- when you, you and I talk about transparency, you know, we're talking about, you know, we're really talking about brands being, you know, more like a lot more transparent about where their factories are, uh, how, like what the wages are, those factories pay, you know, who the work, like who the workers are, some brands even let you meet the people in, you know, in their factories. And then, and essentially whenever Lane started this radical transparency slogan, right. What they were actually talking about in the beginning was their price transparency, which mm-hmm. is kind of a slap in the face when you talk about the ethical side of transparency, because tri- price transparency has nothing to do with the people who made our clothes, right? That has all to do with us. It's a selfish thing. Like we want to know, mm-hmm. like, the, and don't get me wrong. Like, sure, that's nice. But like, we want to know the inputs and, you know, how much it costed them to make the shirt. So we know that we're getting a fair deal, but that's all selfish. Like that's all about us. It has nothing to do with the person who made it um, and whether or not they're getting a fair wage. And then they, they kind of added like, where their factories are with like very little extra information, you know, to that. So like, and so like, I don't know, like if, if I, if I use radical in front of the word transparency, like, like I said, I, I would think of brands like known supply that let you like meet the people who made your clothes, you know, and include like, you know, the name of the person on the inside of the tag, like, that, you know, or like Adelante shoe company is a brand we love where, you know, where the makers like sign the shoes and, um, and you can meet all of their makers as well. Um, and their impact reports and such. So like, that's, I mean, I would think of like those brands when I think of like radical, um, I wouldn't think of Everlane. No, no. I mean, I think it was interesting. So definitely people would hear radical transparency coming from Everlane and believe that Everlane truly was being radically transparent about everything, but you're right. It was about price. I think that greenwashing is successful because it kind of exploits our innate selfishness. So for Everlane, not only does it give us this false belief that uh, 
they're doing everything the right way. And so we can rest assured. Also makes us feel like we're getting a good deal, right? Which people love. We all love getting a good deal. But more importantly, all of this greenwashing, it's it exploits our desire to have less of an impact on the planet to do better without having to change any of our habits, which is kind of, you know, it's it's a little selfish, right? We're used to mm. being able to buy a new outfit for every wedding, every date, just cycle through clothing like nonstop. And H&M recognizes that. For example, we're going to talk about other brands too, but H&M is a big one that knows that we want to continue buying new clothes every time we're having a bad day or we're going out or having a picnic or all the other dumb reasons we buy new clothes and we don't need them. So it's H&M is saying like, we get that. Here's a way to keep doing that, which benefits our company by keeping us in business that also allows you to feel better psychologically about what you're doing. And I think that's a hard, it's a hard reconciliation for a lot of people. Like a few weeks ago, a study came out, basically said, you know, rental not as great for the planet as we thought, Um, which as a person who's worked in that industry, I will 100% say clothing rental is not as good for the planet as people might hope. And I saw a lot of comments on posts about that. People were like losing their minds, being very, very defensive, very angry. Uh, And I think it was because no one wanted to hear that this thing that was allowing them to continue to have new clothes all the time and feel better about it was actually not that great. And that maybe the core of the problem is our constant need for new clothing. Yes. No, that's a, I, I love, that's a really great point you brought up. And I think I wanted to hit something else you brought up that I think was like really on point. And I think we really struggle with this in sustainable fashion is like when you brought up price and how we have like an emotional attachment to that. I think I want to talk about something there because I think it's really, really important. And I think, and I don't think a lot of people maybe realize this, but our relationship to and feelings about price are not really our own, right? Like they are, mm-hmm. that is decades of marketing brainwashing from a variety of brands. Not like, not obviously not, like not even just fast fashion was a part of that for sure. Fast fashion taught us that clothes should be disposable and cheap, right? Neither of which is true. Um, but they taught us that over years, but, but, but it's not just them. Like we've been brainwashed into thinking that like things should be affordable. And so, and we value that almost like a, like it's a, like it's a personal value to us, you know, because, and it's honestly, it's been decades of it from brands like Walmart, you know, and, and even, mm-hmm. even brands like Target and their latest advertisement, you know, their, um, what is their slogan? It's like, um, okay. It's, it's slipping my mind right now, but it's something like, <laughs> you know, live your life and it, like living, like living a great life shouldn't cost you more. Right. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's 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 honest. I'm sorry, but it's bullshit. Like, and the, the things I like about Target, like in terms of like, in terms of like, you know, they're they're attempting to partner partner with, you know, like like having more fair trade products in their store, and they try they're trying to work with some sustainable brands and stuff. So they're doing some positive things, but like, but that's just BS from like right, like that is they're uh. and they're entrenching this idea in our hearts and minds, and then because then when you and I and 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 everybody try to have conversations about you know, well, like, hey, maybe clothes actually should cost more. Because um, they, in order for them to be made right, and in order for the person who made them to be paid fairly, you get a lot of resistance because people have been taught that that is not the case. Um, and so you are like fighting a, a war essentially against everyone who believes that that's not the case. And so it's just it's just really hard um, to then to then be like hold, to be like pause 
let's let's take a moment here and ask like how much should our clothes really cost? How often should we really buy them? Um, yeah, because it just brings up like a, a strong emotional reaction, as I'm sure you you've noticed um, when you when you talk about price. Yeah, I mean, and I think price is something I cannot talk about enough because. Back when I recorded the very first episode of Close Horse and was doing research, I was shocked to discover – I mean, I, I had intrinsically guessed this because I had seen how pricing had changed even during my career. But clothing is cheaper now than it was in the 90s. And that's – nothing else is. You mm. know what I mean? Mm. Like mm-hmm. nothing else is. Mm-hmm. And even like my – my husband and I like to sometimes watch 80s episodes of The Price is Right. Uh, it's like our comfort zone. And they'll, every once in a while, there'll be clothes on The Price is Right. It always is like these Hager trousers, <laughs> which are on The Price is Right, I want to say $42 in 1983. I Googled those exact pants because the great thing about this company is they're making the same clothes. And mm-hmm. they are now $39.99. Meanwhile, a car in that era was like $8,000. And I don't even know how much a car is now because I've never had a brand new one, but I would guess it's around $30,000, twenty. Regardless, a massive increase in price that makes sense because, you know, cost of living has shifted. Why are those Hagar pants cheaper, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, so I think, I mean, we have so much unpacking as a society to do around our feelings around the price of clothing because we also think we need a lot more clothes than we need, you know? And I think the fear becomes, well, if, if t-shirts were twice as expensive, then I could only have half as many t-shirts, but it's like, take a step back. I bet you have tons of t-shirts that you don't wear very often, you know, or like the behavior of buying new underwear rather than doing your laundry. Everybody's known someone like that. That's crazy. I don't like that, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I just think we have a lot of unpacking to do there. And, you know, Target, I'm glad you brought up Target. I, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts here because I have so many complicated feelings about Target. Um, independent of its branding or the aesthetic it's selling. It's like on one hand, Target is offering more and more zero waste product. You know, they are offering more product from black-owned businesses. They... You know, even their advertising gives you a warm and fuzzy feeling because it'll be like same-sex couples and then a kid in a wheelchair getting dressed up for Halloween and you're like, oh my God, this is the world I want to live in, right? But then you go in there and the entry rack is a whole mountain of $5 t-shirts that are supposedly sustainable. And mm. that's that's just impossible, right? Um, which we're going yeah. to get to why that's not sustainable further in our conversation. But to be clear... You can't make a sustainable T-shirt for five dollars. Just to be clear, we haven't written an article about Target, so it's or anything. So it's not like a brand we've uh, dug into extensively. But but I can say that this hits on my general feeling about big brands, which is where I struggle. Um, is that like I'm I'm always happy to see like genuine genuine initiatives are great, right? And I think, like I said, I Target like has some genuine initiatives that I'm aware of. Um, but the problem that I always have personally, just just personally with big brands, is like it's always really hard to tell what's genuine. Um, because when, when they have some, like some genuine initiatives, right. But it's a small percentage of what they, what they do total, then you do have to wonder like, okay, do they actually care about this? Do they mean it? Or are Mm -hmm. they just doing like, 
what I would what, what I call the bare minimum, right? There's there's this bare minimum amount of good where like if you do if you do a few things and but you keep like ninety five percent of your business unsustainable, you know, people will feel better about your brand. And mm-hmm. honestly, a lot of times that's why the brands are doing it, unfortunately, in the first place. Um, and see, and that's where that's where my red flag was up because I'm like, if I feel like like they're they're not really in it and they're just trying to make me feel good about them they're basically doing the bare minimum, right? Then, then I don't want to support that brand because that's like, okay, cool. You, you know, you, you have some fair trade products in your store, but like, you know, you're not, you're just, you're just doing that like as much as you think you need to, so that I'll still buy from you, you know? And that's, I think that's kind of the feeling I've gotten from a lot of big brands when they, when they roll out sustainability initiatives. And it's really unfortunate. And that's why I kind of, uh, just, yeah, tend to just not support uh, big brands, even when they do have good initiatives of a small size, um, because it just, yeah, I have to wonder what they're what they're really trying to get out there. Another thing that you brought up when we were talking, which I haven't mentioned to the listeners before, I think it's really important to talk about, is paying for keywords. Mm. Um, and basically, <laughs> jump in if I'm doing a bad job, because you actually have an e-commerce <laughs> background in in a different way than I do. So keywords are basically like search terms that companies bid on and pay for that push them up higher in the search results. When you search like say eco-friendly or sustainable or recycled on Google. Did I do a good job of describing that? Would you would you add on to that? Yes, essentially. Yeah. So I guess well I guess the one the one thing we should uh, make clear is that like when you pay for keywords, you you still you like you, that is only for showing up in ad positions, but obviously with Google, mm-hmm. the ads, you know, the ads don't, people probably recognize the ads, but they don't look that different. They, they look like search results. They just have a little ad thing next to them, you know? Um, mm-hmm. It's confusing. It's it, confusing. It's confusing. Exactly. And essentially, but yes, basically if Elaine, for example, could pay for the term ethical fashion um, and show up like first on the first page of Google uh, on the top as an ad because they paid for that spot. Um the second part of that, though, which is also can be done unethically is is SEO, right, which is search engine optimization, which that's the work you do to get to the top of Google without paying, right? So, well, in I mean, without mm-hmm. paying for that spot. If you're the first result on Google, that's not an ad, um, you know, that's SEO that got you there. And the thing is, that's not like that game is actually being played with money, too, because the thing there is like, you know, it's like, so, so say for like ethical fashion, right? If you show up as like, if you show up as like the first brand when people search for ethical clothing, right? Um, the thing, the thing is like that you may, it may be a good result, right? I don't even know what the first result is for that, but like, but the thing is what it could happen, what can happen as well though, is that you could have paid for a lot of features in like, you know, USA Today and big media sources. And so like you're, it makes you be viewed as a reputable result for that term and for that space. And so you're put there, you know, in the algorithm um, when in reality, you know, there may be little to no evidence supporting that you're actually an ethical brand. Man, let me tell you, SEO is like, if you are good at SEO, you are going to be getting paid so much money. (laughs) It's like such a luxury item to maximize SEO in the world of e-commerce. And please be aware that any anything you search. It's not as uh, unbiased as you might think it could be. You know, Um, I I don't want to say Google's betraying you, but Google makes a lot of money off of both selling these search terms and, you know, just bombarding us with ads, right? When you and I were talking before, you like, you talked about Everlane, for example, 
you know, bidding on ethical fashion, right? I, I would say that putting that stake in the ground and spending that money is making a very public declaration that you are ethical fashion. Yes. Yeah, no, exactly. But, but it's a gray area, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it's, but you're right though. It's actually, when you realize that's what they're doing, because the thing is, I think that they probably weren't counting on people realizing that's what they were doing. Um, but the thing is, you're right. Cause that's actually pretty black and white to say that that is, that is a way of claiming. Like if you're, I mean, if you're, yeah, that is a yeah. way of claiming like I'm ethical fashion. Um, and the reason that's problematic is because when, you know, when people have, uh, obviously there's been, uh, the, everything has been called out in the press a lot. So I, don't, I can't even really put a time on which one this was, but at one of the points in which they were called <laughs> out um, for not being so ethical, um, like their, you know, their founder's response was that we don't claim to be an ethical brand. And it was like, huh, really? Like, cause like, if you don't, <laughs> if you don't claim to be an ethical brand, you wouldn't like do all of that. You wouldn't like pay for um, those keywords and you wouldn't pay for those positions. Cause in their case, it's it's definitely that that other piece is definitely true, right? Where where people often wonder like how did Everlane end up in everybody's ethos as like top ten sustainable brand, right? Because honestly, when you like they were mm-hmm. like we you know we wrote an article um, where we ran Everlane through Remix criteria. This was three two or three years ago. Um, we wrote an article. We ran them through the criteria. They failed. Um, and at that point, that was surprising news to a lot of folks. And so, like, that article was really popular. It was on the first page of Google, um, or I mean, organically, because people were reading it. Um, and the thing is, like, people were surprised. Some people were even angry to read our article because it was all, like, it was in so many people's heads that, like, this is a sustainable ethical brand. And people were like, well, why did I think this? You know, why did I think this? Um, and honestly, myself included. Like, before we, we, we you know, we, mm-hmm. we researched them and everything, I actually had... Um, you know, considered them a sustainable brand in the past. And what I realized after looking into this is it's because they position themselves that way. Like they, mm-hmm. you know, they pay for these spots in like, like in USA Today, for example, where that's like top 10 sustainable brands. And then USA Today charges 25 to, you know, 3,500 per slot to those brands and they pay it. And then, you know, but when folks see it, they're like, oh, top 10 sustainable brands, not realizing that like those brands just paid for those spots. So I think the key takeaway here isn't like, Obviously, Google's not the enemy. Like, Google's a great resource. I think everybody uses it. But the point is, like, it's not, um, it shouldn't be, like, your your number one or, like, your most trusted resource for sustainable fashion, right? Like, that's why it's important to have other resources, you know, like EcoStylist, um, you know, like Remake, et cetera, that you trust. Um, because that can be a much better starting point than than Google mm-hmm. where you, because where you, when, when you're using Google, you do need to sift through that noise and be like, you know, if, if one of those top 10 results you got are, you know, if it is like USA Today or like Men's Journal or like, I don't know, all these publications that just like, you know, yeah, just let people pay for those spots, then um, then yeah, then it's not going to give you a good result. Um, that, and it wasn't researched in terms of like, like their definition of ethical and sustainable is essentially meaningless. Oh, yeah, totally. And I was telling you about how, for example, when I was trying to vet all of these different forms of faux leather, like uh, pina tax, which is made of parts of pineapple and there's an apple leather and cactus leather, all of these things, uh, I would Google them because I had a feeling just based on my experience with faux leathers and my knowledge of how they are made and how they get that leather-like quality that based on my experience, there was no way that anything being made out of pineapple leaves or whatever, or cacti would have that leather-like quality without having some sort of plastic, some polyurethane in there somewhere. And I would Google these products and I would go five, 10 pages into the search results and still be finding the same regurgitated press release over and over again. 
every blog was quoting the same talking points using the exact same verbiage. Mm. And I was like, okay, well, this is already not good. But if you were an average person who was like, I wonder if Pina Tex is plastic-free, you wouldn't find that information without really digging. And ultimately, where I found it on the was on these company websites by digging very deeply into parts of the website that most customers aren't going to look at. And that's when I found time and time again that these all had a polyurethane top layer that gave it that leather-like texture and finish. And so these products were not biodegradable. And I would argue only slightly better than pure 100% plastic vegan leather, you know? The key problem there is that the, is like, uh, that the average person doesn't have or doesn't want to spend the time doing the digging like that mm-hmm. you did. That's the key problem, right? Is like right. they want to answer fast. And so, and the answer that they're getting quickly in this case, like is not good. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's just the same thing over and over again. And it's not like, like, you know, the cactus leather company paid for all those blog posts, but they sure did supply the talking points, so they just kept coming up. And none of those blogs were interested in asking, or maybe they didn't know enough about how this product is made to ask, is it 100% biodegradable? Is it plastic-free? You know? Um, mm, yeah, I don't – well, not, not, to throw like a, not to throw a wrench in the fire here, but, uh, but, um, but actually they might have paid for those. Oh, really? Right? Interesting. Yes. Yeah. With pre- that is something else I've learned um, from doing this is because we had a we've had a decent amount of press usually you know in you know, honestly mostly like a lot of podcast features uh, we've been featured in Forbes like a few other a few other things and like you know magazines newspapers and things and so and I've obviously explored um, you know other press because press is great you know it helps you it helps you tell your story you know helps people discover your brand so right it helps helps people learn about ego stylists um but what i've learned from that is that you can pay for a lot of press mm. press yeah there's a lot of pay to play in press including press release distribution so the thing is like while press releases it's not like while they're still distributed in you know the i guess you almost call it the old-fashioned way now where like you know you have a cool story and people share it because it's interesting and worth learning about that still happens but there's also something else that's happening a lot which is that people are paying for press release distribution um and yeah so so that's just something else to be weary of which i think i don't really know the money trail behind this one so i but i would i would venture to guess it's there um when you think about like h&m for example right we we with h&m uh greenwashing and this is often the case with them like when they do greenwashing they'll claim something super sustainable. They'll put out a press release and then like WWD, um, you know, uh, I think sometimes like Teen Vogue, like all these publications uh, like USA Today, like these, they'll pick it up and just regurgitate it. And I would be willing to venture that at least, if not all, like some of those placements, uh, you know, were paid or somebody was paid, you know, to like, and so like, it's not a coincidence um, that those press releases are just being picked up and regurgitated. Um, and because it, it, and also if a publication wasn't being paid, they probably would like fact check it. So I don't know. Just <laughs> I mean, something, that's a really good point. To think about. Yeah, I mean, you're totally right. That was really naive of me to assume that because I actually know from my experience working in the industry that the like digital press, because who buys newspapers that often anymore or actual magazines? So most most promotion, most news about fashion and apparel is happening online. And I saw a shift even in my career. Like in the early days, all you had to do was like send Refinery29 some photos and they would be like, oh, cool. Can we borrow these samples? They would shoot it and it would be on their site, right? 
it turned into like, actually, we can't do anything unless there's an affiliate link, like some sort, something that's going to drive some revenue. So basically, they were saying like, we, you can pay us to run something, or you can give us a percentage of everything that's sold by through the click-through links in this article that we'll write for you to make money. I mean, like that sounds so cynical and depressing, and I'm not saying all of Refinery29's content is like that, but if you go look at their website or any anyone else who's playing in this space, you start to see very clearly there might be articles about why you should vote. Then there's going to be an article about the 10 hottest Memorial Day sales, you know, and it, you can see, you can put the cat, you can put all the content into two buckets. Like this was organic, something they were interested in writing about. This is something they wrote for money. It becomes very clear, uh, which makes it even harder, yeah. you know, to, to suss it all out. No, exactly. Exactly. And no, and I, I, I mean, I, to be honest, like I didn't really know or suspect that with press releases like that wasn't intuitive to me um i mean i kind of discovered that um well i discovered that because usa today reached out to me and uh, <laughs> was like you know or actually a, well, a P, I should say to be more exact a pr firm did um in in like but for an article in in, in usa today and they were like here's an article that um what was it like it was like top 10 you know like i don't know like sustainable uh, or like fashion leaders to be like looking out for in 2021 uh, you know, like $2,500 for a spot in this article. And I was like, I don't, you know, I was like, if you acknowledged us um, for that spot and wanted to write about us, cool. But I, I don't really think I should be paying you for that. Yeah, like, and giving this, weird. you know, like, yeah. yeah, I was like, I don't like personally. And that was a little grayer, you know, um, in terms of ethics, because it wasn't like, if it was like, um, but if it like, just think about it, if this slant had been slightly more, like what if it had been like the, you know, like, like top 10 sustainable, sustainable startups or something, you know what I mean? Yeah. Cause then, cause that puts that, that, that then gives the impression that we at EcoStylist are super sustainable and, and, and we are, but the thing, but the point is like, I shouldn't be paying for it. Like if that's true, like that should be recognized in a way that I'm not paying for it. Um, because that's a big ethical question, right? Like I shouldn't be paying for a, a you know, a top 10 position like that. Um, yeah, because anyway, that just muddies the water quite a lot. And so that's, yeah, that's just the kind of the, what we find ourselves in uh, with PR, which was to my surprise as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And so another sign of greenwashing that kind of is a part of that is this very black and white thinking. Like you were like, H&M will come out with this, like, look at this perfect sustainable thing we did. And that's all you read are these very absolute, very black and white stories about, sustainability. This idea that it's either perfectly sustainable or it's not sustainable at all. And the reality is that most of this, well, no, sustainability itself is so gray area and mostly gray area specifically now because for say H&M to do this 100% perfectly sustainable thing, that would be more than just making stuff out of recycled cotton. It would mean paying all their workers a living wage and changing the means of shipping and all of these other things that there's no way they're doing because it's too difficult. And so when you see a really loud public declaration of we're the most sustainable brand or something, you should automatically distrust whatever they're about to tell you next. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. And the reason... Um you know, we're getting on the case of brands like, like H&M and Zara and stuff is not because like, obviously progress is important, right? And real progress should be 
acknowledge, I just want to point out that like, we're not like, and nobody's perfect. Like no brand right. is perfect. Our brands have room for improvement and we, we footnote that. Um, so yeah, we're not like, we're not, uh, you know, promoting this idea of eco-perfectionism, right? We just want to help people support genuinely good brands that we believe in that, you know, that it's, that it's worth your time to believe in and support. Um, and the problem with fast fashion and the reason we're so hard on them is because it's, it's because to your point, like it's because they're not addressing the biggest elephant in the room, which is their business model, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like, and honestly, I would, I would be extremely happy if H&M and Zara like paid living wages. I mean, I, I would view that as like a big step in the right direction, but even that, like, and like, I mean, that would, I don't know, that would, that would be surprising. It'd make me pretty happy. But the thing is, even that though, they'd still be pretty far behind, you know, a lot of the brands that we work with because of their overconsumption mm-hmm. model, right? Which is like, which is the biggest unsustainable thing they do. And that is like produce a new collection every single week, you know, have like hundreds and thousands of new items every month. Um, that whole like that whole like mass consumption model still puts them like far behind the brands that we work with who aren't doing that. Um, you know, they're not like like they're saying like here's a product that was made better. Um, you know, and maybe it maybe it costs a little more to so we can pair people fairly, but also like we're not trying to get you to buy it once a week. Like we're, yeah. we're encouraging um, we're encouraging you to spend less money actually over time because maybe it's more item per, more money per item, but you're buying less items. You're not you know buying a new outfit every week, and so. Yeah. So if that's the biggest problem with fast fashion is they won't, that's the elephant in the room that it's like, it's cool that you guys are doing like these small things, but you're still like miles behind because of that one massive thing you're not addressing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that if they could, if H&M came out and said like, listen, we uh, are aware that the entire business model of fast fashion is not sustainable by its very nature of being fast fashion. Uh, here are the things that we're trying to work on. It's going to take us a while to get there. Um, and here's our plan for doing that. I would be like, fuck yeah, take mm. my money, H&M. But that's not what they're doing. They're like, oh my God, we're so sustainable now. Come and shop. Uh, <laughs> you know? unfor- uh, yeah, no, unfortunately, I, kn- I know their response to this because I-, I had the unfortunate pleasure of reading this in a press release. Um, <laughs> when they were called out on their business model, their CEO said, uh, I can't remember it word for word, but essentially the gist of what he said, which goes right back, which goes right back into our conversation is when confronted about their business model being unsustainable, they said like, it's their mission to make clothing, you know, more affordable and accessible for the world, which is bullshit. Like, and it goes right back to our point about that, like price emotion mm-hmm, thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like their way of like skirting around their, their unsustainability, their unethics that, right. Their way of like not being responsible for all of that is being like, well, you know, Hey, we're doing you a favor by, um, you know, by, by making this t-shirt, you know, more affordable for you, which is, you know, which is a lie. It hits on like that price emotion thing for us again. And again, and the other thing, which I saw somebody, um, uh, I think it was Aja Barber or an influencer called this out recently. Um, I think that's on Instagram where she was like, um, like fast fashion isn't like being, it's not succeeding because of poor people, right? Which mm-hmm. is the um, which is the unsaid thing that's being said there, right? It's like it's like if fast fashion is important because it's affordable, right? Suggesting that it's like like people um, who like have less income need fast fashion. That's obviously BS because you know these brands, which are billion multi billion dollar brands, are being supported by lots of middle and upper class people. So like that whole thing is a lie, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. we need to like it's yeah. No, definitely. This is anyway. one of those this is one of those myths <laughs> that I've been really trying to dismantle because you know, there is this belief and it's interesting, it's not coming from people who are actually poor in general that we need to perpetuate fast fashion to ensure that poor people can still have clothing. And I'm like, you know, 
H&M doesn't become a billion-dollar company because poor people are buying clothes. It's because middle and upper-middle-class people are buying tons of clothes all the time. Yes. And we can see a through line in our own behavior as consumers in the era of fast fashion as we started buying more and more and more clothing because we could go to Forever 21 and drop $100 and leave with two bags of clothes. That's how fast fashion made its fortune, not on poor people having access to $5 t-shirts. I hate that H&M is using that against us, that, you know, that belief that poor people need fast fashion. They're like weaponizing it. It's like they're going into Instagram and finding the hottest takes and turning it into a marketing message. I hate it. Yeah. Well, it's also, it's also like ridiculous because it's, it positions it in a way that like they're doing something good for the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and but when they're not which like, <laughs> spoiler, which they are absolutely yeah spoiler yeah exactly and and when you look at their um I really applauded remake for this when they um I actually put out two YouTube videos one on recently and one on H and M and one on Zara um and I shared I shared remakes work on this in both of them but that is that you know they had these really great campaigns recently calling out big brands where they pointed out like the profit of the people you know the the salaries and and the net worth of the people at the top um. Which is like, a, if anything, to me, that's like the most damning evidence that these brands are not doing this, you know, uh, certainly not doing it for poor people, right? Or or like, is, which is like, is their positioning that statement or like for people who are less fortunate, like that's a bunch of BS, right? Like they're obviously doing it. Um, there's extreme income inequality in these brands, you know, like the founders are worth billions of dollars. Um, and, you know, and first of all, if they were doing it for income inequality, then like, I think, the, the, sorry, that makes me really mad because if that's actually why they were doing it, they would pay their workers. I mean, fairly. exactly. They, if that's why they were doing exactly. it, like, number one, they would pay people a living wage. Yeah. yeah. But, like, besides that, like, look at their, look at the families running these companies like Zara and H&M, you know, multi-billion dollar families. So, like, yeah. So, it, it, when you look at that, it's like, okay, we, we know why you're doing this. Like, you know, it's not, and it's not to help the world. Yeah. Oh, totally. Totally. It's so silly. Another way to spot greenwashing is what Greenpeace calls ad bluster, which I know when I told you this term, you really loved it. Um, I can't unsee it since I've learned the term ad bluster. And basically that's when a retailer or a brand just goes on like a mega marketing blitz with some quote sustainable thing that they did. Um, I use Nike as an example. They'll do a collection of recycled sneakers and it is all I will read about everywhere on the internet for like three weeks and Mm. they often are spending more money on all of that advertising and marketing than they are on any other actual sustainability initiatives and so when i see things like that i mean h&m we're going to talk about h&m even more get ready in a few but when i see like for example nike going so hard on this one collection that was maybe a thousand sneakers maybe less 500 Nike makes millions and millions of sneakers every year. Like that tiny collection is such a drop in the bucket. We're not talking about the vast majority of what they're making. It gives customers that warm and fuzzy feeling that Nike is a company worth supporting. But the reality is like if you just go to Foot Locker and buy a pair of Nikes, those aren't sustainable. I would question the sustainability of these so-called recycled sneakers either. That's a whole other thing I could dissect. But it's just that it's taking something so small and blowing it up until it's anything. It's all anyone's talking about. And, you know, H&M is a great example of that. Like I 
generally don't want to think about H&M, but unfortunately, H&M makes that impossible <laughs> by invading the internet every few months with some collection. They've been doing it almost in a more subconscious way, which is like through influencers, right? That's their mm-hmm. big thing now is H&M, you know, works with these influencers now um, to specifically promote their, like you're saying, their sustainability initiatives, which makes people feel better about H&M and view them as a more sustainable brand than they are. That's actually why I made these videos about H&M and Zara, because I felt like it was the right time mm. to um, just be like, just put out a reminder of um, like what the, how these brands are actually doing on a sustainability spectrum, um, because they're working really hard and paying lots of influencers to convince you that that's not the case. Like that, they, that they're, you know, that they're becoming, you know, more sustainable brands um, and brands worth supporting. And H&M released this Billie Eilish collection. Um, I don't remember. It was quite a while ago, like over, I think over a year ago now. Um, they released this Billie Eilish collaboration, which they do with many artists. They release, you know, uh, collections of clothing. And, but the thing is that they were claiming that it was like, they there was like this really audacious claim, like something about it being like 100% sustainable, <laughs> right, in their press release. Yeah. And... Yeah. And the reason I say it like that is because like you're not going to be able to find it because they deleted the press release is the thing. So, yeah, (laughs) things got really shady really fast. So what happened is they put out this press release. They made these really audacious claims. um, And this kind of full circle of like a lot of things we've been talking about, like uh, multiple like it was literally like like Teen Vogue, WWD, um, like a slew of other publications literally just regurgitated that press release, like did not fact check it or question it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think maybe one of them and like edited it post like criticism to reflect like that they thought about it the funny thing was h&m them like then i think started to receive heat so they deleted the they deleted the press release but all the articles were still out there oh yeah they're still out there i just googled it it's like here's one from pop sugar it says every item in this collection is made from sustainably sourced materials so you can rest easy knowing your purchase hasn't negatively impacted mother earth how awesome is that just like ugh. Yeah. So, and so obviously this like fired me up and I looked in and when I looked into it, things just got worse. Like I looked through the website, I looked through the collection. Um, it's in our article. So I, I think it was like, but I think it was like 80% of the pieces in that collection, like weren't even made with sustainable fabrics. So I didn't even know where they were getting these numbers from. Um, like the vast majority of the collection was just like, you know, synthetics, like oil derived virgin materials. Um, and it just, yeah, so it was, like, really confusing, like, where they were getting the evidence for the claims that they made. And there was just, things got, like, really sketchy really fast, um, including their behavior with, like, deleting the press release and things. So, yeah, so we wrote this article about it where we were just like, hey, you can't come out and say stuff like this and not support it with evidence. Like, if you're going to claim this collection is sustainable, like, we'd like to know why and how. Um, because, like, this is what we found, and it wasn't very sustainable. Um, so we just, yeah, so we basically put that on an article, and then um, a podcast interviewed us about it. And we had a great conversation with them and they, they did their own digging too um, after our conversation. And they found some interesting things as well that were just, you know, basically just reiterating how shady it was, like just some shady decisions by H&M in terms of their behavior around this collection. And so, yeah, and I think, and the thing is, like I said, that was just one example, like just one collection of what I think H&M does all the time. We really hoped that we were going to be able to share this, this article with, um, you know, like Billie Eilish uh, fan communities and that they would be on board to support it. Um, we we, we kind of got an, op- an opposite reaction, <laughs> um, unfortunately, because I think that they, the, you know, obviously sometimes any form of criticism um, can be perceived as like a criticism of of the artist or the person. And that's actually not, our article didn't 
uh, wasn't didn't criticize Billie Eilish at all. Because what we found in in all of this digging is that like most likely Billie Eilish, first of all, probably didn't even have a say in the collection and probably wasn't allowed to critique the collection, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because of like contracts and probably like you know her her producers probably signed the contract, you know, um, because they have those rights. And so so she probably had little or nothing to do with the collection other than needing to comply with it. Um, and so, like, while it would have been nice if she spoke out, but she probably couldn't. The thing is about this is H&M really, though, used her image as being like, you know, somebody who who cares about the environment um, to their advantage to greenwash. And so, like, that's really the story we wanted to tell is like, you know, what H&M was doing there and how that was irresponsible. Oh, yeah. I mean, H&M is 100% at fault here because I've worked on collabs like this at some of my jobs. And ultimately, the celebrity or whoever, the person, the brand, whatever that we're collaborating with, they'll get sign off on how the final samples look and feel. Um, You know, they might give some buy-in on silhouette or colors, but they 100% have no idea what kind of fabrics we're using they don't know the true sustainability or lack of sustainability of the line. And they're not even really allowed to control any of that. And most certainly, Billie Eilish was contractually obligated to not question any of it publicly. I'm sure privately she was mortified. Um, I do think H&M is such a great example of how these brands in partnership with mass media can really perpetuate greenwashing and make it more factual than it really is. Uh, I think H&M being, you know, obviously one of the biggest ones out there, they are so smart about weaponizing sustainability in tandem with pop culture, but they're also so responsible. I, I put them up there before any other retailer in terms of reinforcing this myth of clothing recycling and circularity. In a multitude of ways. One is the dropping off your clothes at the store and getting the coupon for the discount. They tell you that these clothes are going to be recycled. The reality is that most of these clothes are either shredded up or head to developing countries where they become their pollution problem. We have more episodes coming in the future about that, but H&M is not recycling those clothes that you give them to recycle. And then there's the loop machine. (laughs) Something I thought was really interesting is when H&M started this take back program and there was no loop machine, right? Um, I remember reading this article about like how, you know, H&M started this program and they collected all these clothes and now they just have like warehouses full of clothes they didn't actually know what to do with. And I just remember reading that story and being like, are you kidding me? Like you, 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 you had a program where you claimed you were going to be recycling the clothes and you didn't even have like a plan for like how or what you were going to do with them. Oh um, my, I know. I mean, for a company that size, that's mortifying. I'm like, what happened there? You know? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like, I think that just reinforces your, the point, your point that like, that was really a sales tactic, like of like, you know, of like come into our store and get a coupon so you can buy more stuff that you don't need um, and not actually like a genuine effort to be more sustainable. Oh, absolutely not. No, no. It's, I mean, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a good faith project. You know what I mean? Like they weren't thinking this through at all. So I noticed like in the past couple of years, there were more stories sort of popping up just here and there, not as many as you would think that were picking holes 
in this take back recycling illusion that H&M was perpetuating. There are articles here and there of like, what's really happening to your clothes? We traced it, that kind of thing. But you have to dig for them or like really search exact terms to get there. But H&M hmm. definitely became aware that, you know, the end was nigh. It was going to come. People were going to start talking about this illusion they were already selling us. So they came out with the loot machine, which for like two weeks is all I saw on Instagram, in any of the fashion media, in sustainability media. Uh, the loot machine, which has many O's in it. Uh, I think there's only one, and I, it's in Europe somewhere in a store. It's one machine where if you, you can go watch a video of it on the H&M website where basically you put in a garment, the machine cleans and, you know, disassembles it into the, the original thread yarn and then re-knits a new t-shirt basically, right? The, the idea is that this loot machine is going to save the world and that we can all buy all the H&M clothes we want and just feed them into the loot machine when we're done. So I was telling Garrick before we started recording that I went on a rampage today trying to debunk the, the loot machine <laughs> because all I've found all over the internet is like, this is the, the future. So first off, the thing about the loot machine is that it can only recycle very simple knit garments. So it can't do like a woven blouse. It couldn't do something that had like zippers and buttons and stuff like that. Um, it certainly couldn't recycle your like faux leather jacket. Um, so it's very limited in terms of what it can do. Second, it takes five hours for the loot machine to recycle one garment. Like, how is that a solution? Uh, I was, I, you know what I mean? Like, that's not a viable no. solution at the rate that we consume clothing right now. You know? Yes. Yeah. And, no, and this goes right back to my point about um, H&M's collaborations with influence screws. Because, right, because wasn't it, isn't it... Um, like Macy Williams, I think on is that you say her name on um, Instagram? Like she she collaborated with each and did this video about the loot machine. That's like like, like no, which is exactly what you said. It's like highly suggestive that this is going to like save the world. Yeah, yeah, but realistically, it can recycle four very simple <laughs> knit garments per day, and we're consuming. You know, probably I, I wouldn't be surprised if we were consuming several million garments a day. Well, no, way more than that, because I want to say we're buying anywhere from 80 to 150 billion garments per year. So as you can see, four garments a day doesn't really put a dent in that. Um, it also perpetuates this idea that clothes are made by robots. It, it doesn't surprise me that H&M leaves humans out of the loop machine because H&M doesn't want us to ask about their workers, right? And I, one of the things that I always pick apart in anybody's sustainability message is the invisibility of the human element of making those clothes. All of these brands focus on the environmental impact, whether truthfully or fictionally, they never talk about the workers because I think, you can tell me what you think here, by doing that, it would be confessing that for years and decades, these companies made billions off of exploiting humans. Yes, no, facts. This this actually makes me more angry about H&M than like almost anything else 
and that is that, uh, and I called this out in our, um, like in, in, in our YouTube video about H&M, um, which is the fact that they promised to pay living wages. I think it was in 2018, um, 2017, 2018, 2018, I think. They had promised to pay living wages to their workers. Um, it came and went. And, you know, we're, here we are, 2021, still hasn't happened. Like, we're still waiting. Um, but I'm not holding my breath because I haven't seen any, like, strong or tangible initiatives on that front from them. So I, I don't think there's progress happening. Um and the thing that makes me really mad is um, is a hypothesis that I have that you're hitting on about the robots, which is that, like, this is what I think is going to happen. And it, for sure with H&M and probably with other fast fashion as well, and that is that they will, they exploit people, right? Like you pointed, they have exploited many, many people. They continue to exploit people. They refuse to pay. They refuse to just own up to it and pay living wages, right? And then what's going to happen is in their, in their long-term vision, they're going to replace those people with robots, like literally, because that's right. Because that's if we look at like three D printing of clothing, like this actually this technology is like on the horizon. So they are going to replace those humans with robots, and between now and then, they will not pay those people a living wage. So they will basically just have exploited millions of people to make their clothes, and then they will switch to robots. And to me, that is like the biggest slap in the face. It's like you couldn't like rather than like oh, and that make, nothing makes me angrier about them than that is like. And again, I hope that doesn't happen, but that's my hypothesis, and that's what's been kind of like. Like, I really think that's where they're going is that they will just continue to put this off as long as they can work on their public image, try to make people feel good about them and then replace humans with robots, never having done right by the people that they've been wronging for decades. And I think that that's um, to me, that's the number one reason why I believe that nobody should support them um, or brands like them, because like, yeah, because at the end of the day, that's just like from an ethical perspective, um, that's pretty terrible. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, as a reminder for everybody listening, when we talk about sustainability and true sustainability, not the word as it's been marketed, but the actual meaning, it's really about embracing and embodying the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And believe it or not, half of those goals are related to people and ending poverty and in just mm. in general giving everybody a better life, right? It's not 100% about environmentalism. Unfortunately, these retailers are they're I mean they're not even truly solving the environmental impact around clothing at all, like these large fast fashion retailers, but they're also just ignoring the human side of it. I mean, and we we see that time and time again, yeah. like the whole pay up movement was basically retailers erasing the humans from the equation. And, you know, some retailers were like, oh, shit, like, people are starting to pick up on this fact that we canceled all these orders and people are starving because of it. We'll pay, we'll pay them back. But even those brands, like, say, The Gap, who agreed to pay all of those canceled orders, they didn't say, and on top of that, we're going to start paying people a living wage. Like, no one's doing that. Even if a brand gave in and pay, agreed to pay up, they're not currently paying up to the level they should be. And that it's not even just the workers making our clothes. It's also the people working in their stores and warehouses. Those people also are often barely getting by, living paycheck to paycheck. And meanwhile, then you've got, you know, some of the wealthiest people in this world are at the helms of these fast fashion brands. It's Yes, no, literally, literally wealthiest in the world. I'm glad you brought up the SDGs because actually the SDGs that we're most focused on, they actually are focused on people, right? It's SDG 8, which is decent work and economic growth because um, we're looking at brands that provide good jobs that pay living wages, right? And then the other one is, is 12, which is responsible consumption, 
right? Mm-hmm. Which is where a huge problem in fashion, uh, where fast fashion is irresponsible consumption. Yeah. So those are actually the SDGs that we're most focused on. You know, like obviously climate change is, is one of them and it's important, but like where we see ourselves as having the most impact on SDGs is actually those two. Um, because it's, yeah, it's the overconsumption problem that's really unsustainable. And then, yeah, and then needing to provide good jobs and not not jobs that, yeah, that pay really low wages. Absolutely. And that involves changing their entire business model. It doesn't mean, well, as you know, because you work with brands who are abiding by these goals, it doesn't mean that a business can't be successful. But unfortunately, if you've been adopting this business model now for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, it's it's not like you can flip a switch overnight and suddenly be sustainable and ethical. And once again, like if these brands were transparent about that and identified a path forward, I would be really excited and supportive. But instead, what we get is a lot of claims that don't really have a basis in anything. Well, let's talk a little bit about what you think are some of the brands that might be surprising to listeners that you think are the biggest culprits of greenwashing. We know H&M and Zara are up there on the list, but I know that there are other brands that people might be surprised to hear. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we can probably divert from talking about fast fashion here for a little bit because um, we talked about them quite a lot. And I, we already mentioned Everlane. So um, I think we've probably touched on, you know, how and why they're guilty of of greenwashing. So some other ones that might surprise people um, and, and, and would be, well, let's just start with Allbirds as for one example. Yes. Um, yes. And that one, obviously, this one's pretty great, right? Because from an environmental perspective, um, you know, Allbirds does great things. Uh, they are a B Corps. Um, but this is why, you know, something that we've been saying, um, and in conjunction with remake, cause I mean, this is like in remakes criteria, there's not a, there's not a space for B Corps where it's just like, you know, 20 points. Um, because the reality is you can't like being a B Corp and don't get me wrong, being a B Corp is fantastic. Like it's obviously, I love to see companies moving towards being social enterprises. Like we're probably going to be a B Corp at some point, but I just want to pause for a moment to say that like, but that being a B Corp though, um, from like a perspective of like, you know, like Amanda, like you or I, or like, like if we're trying to look for like a sustainable or ethical brand, simply the brand being a B Corp isn't really enough. Um, and I think people don't know that. Like, I mm-hmm. think people, they kind of assume that it is. Um, and that's not the reality because it doesn't tell us it doesn't tell us the key information we want, right? Like for me, like one of the key pieces I want to know is like fair wages, you know, and simply being a B4 doesn't guarantee that a brand um, pays fair wages. And, and, and that's what we find with, with Albert. So yeah, it's like they, like while they do a lot of things for the environment and their B core, um, I think, okay, I just want to point out for a second here, because I don't know if people realize this, they're, they're valued at over a billion dollars. Okay. So, so Allbirds is no longer, they're no longer the tiny startup that I think people imagine them as they are a very wealthy company. And so they should be leading on this, like, right? Like we cannot accept silence from a company this large on mm-hmm. their people. And that is exactly what they have given us. They've given us silence. Like, like you know, like where's their transparency pages on their website? Um, you know, where do they talk about fair wages, uh, certifications for their factories? They don't, they don't talk about those things. And it's especially relevant as Allbirds expands beyond shoes, like that's the like because they, they they're, right they're like they're like oh we're gonna have like underwear and shirts and stuff and it's like okay well if you're gonna like it was never okay to be clear like when they just did shoes it still it was not okay either but it's like now they're venturing into clothing um, and so it's like come on like we we need to know you know this information um, and it, and I I mean and again like I don't I don't have any insights into their supply chain but it definitely makes you wonder you know, if they have something to hide being like how long they've been around. The worst thing about them not talking about their people 
is that they are literally in a leadership position as a, as a company that's sustainable and a B Corp and as successful as they are. Um, they're literally like they, people are looking to them as to be the example and they are falling short. And that is like, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, that's like that they have a lot of responsibility and they're not doing what they should be with that responsibility. And I think that we should be like, people should be mad. Absolutely. And, and like, to be clear, they are aware of this. This is not like they are just like working so hard on the environmental side that they forgot about the people side. And when you see any of these brands crowing about all of their environmental achievements, if they're not talking about the human side of it, that's because they know that that they're not delivering there. Like or they would be yelling about it at like off the rooftops, you know? Like this this is this is something that they are very aware of, and I am concerned. That's an understatement. I'm irate that they don't talk about it or address it. Yeah, I think the reason that we're both hitting on this as being so important is because if they if they don't do this, and they see the problem with Allbirds is that people are still convinced. Like people are like, oh, like we we wrote this article, and it honestly it, we kind of put it out into the world to like meager reception. Like people, were, you know, because I think people like I think it's kind of one of those things where people didn't really want to hear it. Like they were mm-hmm. like, they were like, okay, they, they were like, this is really interesting information, but like, I, I don't really want to believe this because I like Allbirds. Um, and, <laughs> you know, unfortunately, but that's the danger, right? If Allbirds can get away with this and we and people can say like, well, you know what? It's okay. I still believe Allbirds is a good brand. Then that sets the precedent for more greenwashing and for other brands to do the same thing. And it like, it, it goes directly against progress, right? Um of what, what we want brands to be doing. Like we want brands to be right. Like what the whole point of like fashion revolution, you know, and like, and like remake and all of this, right. All of this work is like for brands to be more transparent so that people aren't being exploited. And Allbirds is like directly working against that actually by, by being like, well, we're special so we can get away with this, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And also, yeah. And then like lowering the bar for what people will believe is, is ethical and sustainable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it makes me angry. You know, because I see how they manipulate people. And I think that Allbirds is one of those brands that people generally look to as being like an example of how a company could be sustainable and successful. And they're not actually sustainable. Um, I don't think they would be less successful by actually being sustainable, but they have chosen that route. And I can't believe that. Wow, you just blew my mind that they're valued at a billion dollars. That is, I've always been really skeptical of them anyway, because I felt like they spent way too much money on store experience and not enough on product. But talk about the effect of this kind of buzz that it can have on a business and allow it to grow in this exponential way. Um, very, very disheartening. So another one that you had mentioned to me was alternative apparel. And yes. I think of of them as the like original sustainable clothing brand. <laughs> Not I know someone's going to call in and be like, "No, actually the original was this." But like they were adopting sustainable sustainability language, if you will, well before anyone else. Alternative Apparel has been around for a while and they've been I believe they've been promoting the idea of, you know, sustainability within fashion since like the 90s. Um, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. And so you're right in the sense that like they, you know, in that respect, they were a leader, you know, on this front and, you know, they're a brand that used to pass remakes criteria. 
actually. So like actually consider, you know, a sustainable brand. Um, I thought of like, honestly, before, uh, before we wrote this article and did our rating on them, I thought of them as such. Cause like I said, cause they, they have that precedent where they, they passed the criteria. Um, and so the reason the story is really interesting is cause it's where things start to change that this story gets interesting where things start to change is 2017 uh, when Haynes mm. purchased alternative apparel, which I for, think most people wouldn't know. Most people do not. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it was roughly, it's in our article, but I think it was roughly 50 million. I can't quite remember the number. Um, but yeah, but it's so an acquisition happened there. Um, and it's, that's where things started to change. So basically, yeah, they started, things just started to go downhill from there. Like, like one example, they used to use, more than 50% of their fabrics were sustainably sourced, like actually not, not the way the H&M says. Um, and then like post the Haynes acquisition that changed, like you started to see, you know, less and less. And I even like had responded to some things on their item on their website where like they would say something is cotton or polyester. And I was like, really, I remember being really surprised because like, you know, I've been, I've known an alternative apparel for years. So I'd like message them and be like, is this organic cotton? Or like, is this recycled polyester? And you're just not telling me. And they were like, no, it's, you know, just, and I remember feeling really confused. I was like, what, yeah. what's happening to you guys? Like you guys were, you know, and so basically, yeah, they just kind of degraded and um, I think are continuing to. So we, yeah, when we evaluated them at that point, they failed and our criteria. And um, yeah, it was just sad to see because it also appeared that, um, when I remember in doing our research that they were looking to like integrate their supply chain more with Hanes's, um, which as you can imagine is not going to be a good thing for them from a sustainability perspective. So yeah. So really a sad story there because you had a brand that um, was doing good and could have like continued to be a great brand. Um, but unfortunately also a side note that I just, I personally think is interesting is when I was in LA for um, I've been to LA a couple of times for sustainable fashion events, actually, um, and one of the times that I was there, I randomly, like, I didn't plan it because I just had so much else to do for this event, but I just walked into like multiple of our brand partners there in LA and was like, Hey, can I shoot a YouTube video? And they were like, yes. So I shot a YouTube video in nudie jeans store, um, where I like interviewed the manager there. And I just love how they like repair the jeans right on site. Um, and nudie jeans is a great brand. And mm-hmm. like, I popped into, um, other stores I pop into at the time, at that time, uh, industry of all nations passed our criteria. Um, they no longer do, but, um, yeah. And then there was like a couple of, uh, who else did I pop in on? Um, Oh, like tact and stone is a brand that we love. That's in LA. I popped in there and interviewed the founder. And so, yeah, so we were just popping the stores and alternative apparel was the only one that was, this was pre article. They were one of our brand partners at this time, um, before, like before we had reevaluated them. Um, and I popped into their store and they were like, no, <laughs> wow. and, yeah, they were the only one that said no and they had to they had to contact corporate which was haynes um to like because i think because to get approval and then of course they came back and said no so um i just thought that was kind of an interesting anecdote to that to the, my experience there because um literally like every other brand was like go for it yeah i think that's i mean th- that doesn't surprise me you know like 20 companies make 97% of total fashion industry profits for the whole world. And Hanes is number 20. Uh, Mm. So just probably not a company that a lot of us think about a lot, you know, especially when we think about fast fashion, we're thinking about like Zara and H&M and whatnot. But like Hanes is a major player in this world. And the sheer volume of t-shirts and underwear and socks and God knows what else they're churning out 
is very impactful. If they became a truly sustainable company, that would have a major impact on the industry and the world. Uh, instead, what we're seeing is that they are buying companies that are doing good things and uh, making them do less good things. So something you mentioned was that, uh, I forget what brand you said, but that they no longer met your criteria. Why does that happen? Why would a brand meet your criteria and then not meet it anymore? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And this the particular brand I mentioned is a really interesting case um, okay. because it's not like, because they're not greenwashing and they're like, they're doing a lot of things well. It's really, it's really more of an unfortunate case. But yeah, so that was Industry of All Nations was a brand that, um, but usually, so I'll just say, I'll just say up front, like 90% of the time that we approve a brand and then we like reevaluate them, say like a year later and they fail and we have to remove them. Um, it's because of like cases like alternative apparel, right? Where they're becoming less sustainable instead of more sustainable. So progress mm -hmm. is obviously important for sustainable brands. If they're not making progress, um, you know, never a good sign. Uh, unfortunately, those those stories never end well in my experience. Um, yeah. So yeah. yeah. So basically, that's usually the case is that they 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 are in decline. Um, but some occasionally other things happen, and so with um with industry with industry of all nations, it was really a situation of so remake redid their criteria. I think it was about a year ago to include uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion in their criteria. Ah. And yeah, and that was a category where Industry of All Nations fell quite short. And so, yeah, it kind of like, kind of like Reformation, honestly, where they had had some issues on that front. Um, so interesting anecdote there you'll notice though is, Re is Reformation actually does currently pass uh, Remakes Criteria and actually is one of our brand partners. This isn't cancel culture in terms, right? In terms of like how we view brands. Right, so like with right. Reformation, the reason that you'll see them as a remake approved brand and the reason you'll see them on our website is because they, they actually took, so they made real mistakes. Like that's the thing. They, they really, they actually mm -hmm. really were screwing up. But the thing is they actually took tangible um, efforts to fix those and, and ones that um, I think remake and, and, and us like believed were um, that they meant, right? Obviously time will tell, like we'll be reevaluate, we reevaluate, reevaluate brands regularly um but the thing is like the thing is with them it's like these efforts seem legit like they really are trying to change things because they actually did a lot reformation yeah. did a lot to to you know uh to, to actually like invoke change so it was like okay we can believe this um but within Michelle nations they had some similar issues on the diversity equity and inclusion front and there was no there was no action whatsoever to correct those mistakes or change them um and so it was, it was, it was close. Like it was a close fail. It wasn't like, um, a massive fail. Brands need to earn 50 points or more to pass our criteria. And the reality is like, if a brand earns 50 points, that's like a lot. So this is all the criteria. Like that's actually a lot of good. Cause like nine points are for living wages. Um, you know, the diversity, equity, inclusion category, which is combined with leadership is worth eight points. So that's like, if a brand is, um, you know, if they have, uh, like people of color in senior leadership positions, if they have a diversity policy that they share, the sustainability part is like if they promote um, slowing down consumption, right? Um, that's like eight points. You know, there's there's like four points for having a circulatory initiative. I'm just giving some examples, but basically, brands so brands need to earn fifty points, which is a lot of good. But most so, but the, but most brands that do pass, they have like fifty something points, right? So like say fifty four. So um, I can't remember I, uh, industry of all nations score, but let's say it was like fifty five. You know, then when the sh criteria shifts. 
that can be enough to push them below 50. You know, they, they maybe like say they have eight points mm-hmm. less. Now they're at 40 something. Um, and the one thing that we do look at too, is like if a brand and if a brand isn't giving us like a reason to want to believe in them or that they're making progress, we're not going to like pursue trying to get them over the line. You know what I mean? So like, and like, and there, and in their case, their silence on, on those issues was alarming. Um, so we didn't, follow up with it, you know? And when I say about pushing brands over the lines, what I mean is like, occasionally we, uh, we will reach out to brands that are close to passing and we'll, we'll ask them, we'll say like, you're missing a lot of information on your website, basically is what we'll tell them. And, you know, we'll ask them what they're doing on those things. And if they can put them on their website, you know, because a lot of times, um, especially smaller sustainable brands, they don't necessarily know what information they should be sharing with people. Um, Mm, so we've had brands that were like made in the USA that paid, um, you know, 1.5 or two times minimum wage. And that information wasn't on their website, you know, we talked to them. They told us that. They also put that on their website, and then that you know that helped push them push them over the line. So we'll have cases like that. But but sorry, but back to them. Yeah. So basically, that was an unfortunate case where like Industry of All Nations does a lot of cool things in terms of sustainability and ethics. That was really disappointing for me, honestly, because they're a brand that's very thoughtful. Like I visited their store. They're very yeah. very thoughtful into the finer details, like the finer details of sustainability. But there's 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 what I would describe as a leadership problem. Um, there. Yeah. That's what I was expecting you were going to say. Really, really disappointing. And hopefully they'll hear enough from customers that they'll be forced to address that because it's, it, I would, I would agree. I feel that they are very thoughtful in other matters. It's, It's really disappointing. Agreed. Yeah. So what are the brands you recommend the most or like your favorite brands, I guess I would say. Yeah. My favorite brands. Oh, um, Let's see. So Outer Known is one of my favorite brands. I just love, yeah, I, I love their brand. Um, they do so many great things. Uh, like, for example, their, like, I'll just give some examples. So they're, like, their jeans, they do a lifetime warranty on, which is super cool. Um, they're, which makes them pretty affordable as well. I think their jeans are in the, like, depends on the type, but they're like in the 120 to $180 range. And they, they're made super sustainably, like at Cytex with, you know, organic cotton and lifetime warranty. So, yeah, so like that's just one of the things they do. But just a very thoughtful brand, um, a very thoughtful mm-hmm. brand that's always making progress, which is what we like to see. You know, we like to see brands that are that are doing things sustainably and ethically, but also like continuing to hold themselves to do more. Um, yeah, Adelante Shoe Company, I have to shout, give them a shout out. Um, that's, the, that's, his, that's the first brand that I mentioned that I discovered. Um Met their founder by chance at a flea market, essentially in Boston, um, and I've been a huge fan ever since. They are one of, they are one of the, if not the most progressive brand I've ever met on living wages, um, and I say that because of the thoughtfulness and the detail behind it. Like they, so their factory that they own is they own it themselves is in Guatemala, and they were unhappy with any of the metrics out there. So they put together their own measure of what a living wage is in Guatemala. It's, it's, it's above everything else that, 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 that they could base it on. Um, and they're really transparent about it. Like they're like, this is how much we pay our workers. Um, they put out these awesome reports that measure like quality of life improvements of their workers. And they're really honest about it. Like in actually in one of the reports, there was a finding that like quality of life for the workers had actually reduced year over year in this one aspect. And so they were like, okay, we need to work on that for the next one, you know? Um, so like, wow, that's yeah, they're amazing. not just like lying. And what I mean by quality of life is they'll measure things like, like of our workers, how many can afford to send their, like 
education for their children and for how many of their children, right? Like they're, they're measuring like these types of things and they share this in their impact reports. Um, and they, like I said, they don't sugarcoat it. Like if they, if they actually regressed um, in some metric, you know, and they own up to that. And so, yeah, they're just like, I just, I love them. They're just like great brands. Um, yeah. Uh, like, obviously, like, I think I mentioned nudie jeans earlier is another one where they're like, like super serious. They're so serious about sustainability. I love it. Like, I love their, their energy. Like they're, they're one of our silver brands, um, which I just want to point out, like very few brands on our website are silver or gold. Cause those are extremely progressive categories. Like those are really hard to earn that many points. It's very hard. Um, so like very few brands are silver or gold. Um, and these are, you know, these are like the best brands on the planet, right? Like we, um, literally like you know, we say like 99% of brands fail our criteria, which is true um, because in like the vast majority of those brands never even get researched because they don't stand a chance, you know, like brands like Sheen that have zero points. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> That's a really good point. No chance. Yeah. So like, <laughs> but nudie jeans is a silver is silver and they're like, they're so serious. Like I'll just, I don't like, like I, uh, I remember when, when we shared our ratings with them, they're like already thinking like how we, they can do better and looking at like all the different things, you know, like, it's like they're so serious. Um, and it's just great to see that energy. And I've seen them improve over time as well. Um, I love how they repair their jeans in store. Um, really inspiring. I also just want to add on nudie. Um, my husband is a big long-term devoted fan of nudie and he has had his jeans repaired by them and they came back cooler and better than ever. And he's a buy one pair of jeans per year kind of guy and just wear them every day. I mean, they, the quality blows my mind and yes, they are more expensive than going and buying a pair of jeans at like old Navy or something. But they're well worth it. When I compare it to the like $100 stretchy, like skinny jeans that I used to buy, there's no competition in terms of quality and uh, just looking good, really. (laughs) Yeah, no, 100%. We actually did some, um, we did some digging in because we were were looking at like the quality of sustainable clothing versus, um, you know, unsustainable clothing and how that impacts price. And we dug through like a bunch of articles and we found a bunch of like tests that people did where they, you know, would buy jeans for a year and stuff. And, and the thing is like, and there were some really like awesome examples. Cause like the one you just mentioned, like, um, like where if he, like, if he has one pair of jeans for that year and those costed him, you know, with nudie jeans, probably, you know, like 160 to $200, maybe if they were new, um, if they were new and not, uh, mm-hmm. like their, their, uh, their, their, uh, repaired selections, then yeah versus like what some people have done which is they buy like four pairs at like h&m or um yeah exactly or something and that's yeah that's 160 to 200 dollars for those four and they run through those four pairs in a year like that like over and over again we saw that in these articles where people ran these tests like they're like they're they ran through like all four in you know and so it's like so that's that's a perfect example of like where we we just um we definitely need to think twice about price because it's like sustainable fashion isn't necessarily more expensive, right? Quality is like, uh, quality and buying less are both huge, huge, huge parts of that story. Um, Uh Yeah, 100%. I think that's a hard jump for some people to make because we've always had this idea that more is more and we should have a lot of clothes and that like a huge closet is is a sign of success and being stylish and whatnot. And, Ultimately, you know, going back to this idea that I talked about earlier, or not even an idea, the reality that fast fashion has built these billion-dollar empires off of selling us lots of things, this is a good example. Rather than buying four or six pairs of jeans from H&M that are going to be garbage at the end of the year, 
buy a pair, one pair of really nice jeans that you can also get repaired. It's a life upgrade. Yes. Yes. No, I love it. And, and, and in addition to that, like, it's not, it's also like if they do, you know, if they do wear out to the point that you're like, you could get the free repairs, but you decide you don't want to because you're like, ah, I don't really know if I want to wear these anymore. I mean, the other, the really cool thing too, though, is it, it's not four pairs of jeans being thrown in the trash. It's, it's nudie jeans taking them back from, if you decide you don't want them anymore, it's nudie jeans taking them back from you and either recycling them themselves or repairing them and reselling them in their store. So like not only, you know, is it better for the, you know, for that whole journey, but there's also that circular component to it. So really, yeah, really just an awesome brand. Um, yeah. One that I really believe in. Uh, I wanted to mention a couple other brands. Yeah. So a couple other brands that I find really inspiring for different reasons are, uh, so known supply is one of our brand partners that, um, I really love. They're the one I mentioned where like what I what I consider a true example of radical transparency in that they let you meet the person who made your clothes. Um, I think that's so awesome. You know, like there's a tag on the inside of, of a shirt or a sweatshirt that has the name of the person who who made your garment on it. And you can you can look that person up on their website um, and you can learn a little bit about that person. Um, and, you know, their factory is fair trade certified so you know those people are you know treated well paid fairly um so yeah they're just a really cool brand that has done really well by people and i know that their founder um i've interviewed and talked to their founder he's really passionate about that um and so yeah so i think just awesome brand there and then uh ask it is another brand on the transparency front that's really interesting to look at because i think they're sort of another example of a brand that has more radical transparency um like like an actual example of radical transparency um, compared to Everlane, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a bit different. Like they don't they don't so they don't do the the meet the maker thing. What they're what what makes them unique is their uh, their honesty about their level of transparency is like super on point. And so that makes them that's what really I think makes them special is they're like uh, so what do I mean by that? So like like a t shirt that they sell, they'll be like we have eighty percent transparency on this t shirt. Um, and they'll tell you like why and how and what that means, and that's rare. Like, like for like most most brands don't even admit that. Like most brands don't even acknowledge that I know. they don't have full yeah. transparency. Yeah. So like they actually risk like you thinking something bad about them as a result of that because you might be like because I think most people might some people might be like well why why don't you have complete transparency and the reality is um most brands don't. And this is something we look at with the criteria is like, for sure is like, it's because the, um, the first level is always the sewing part, right? We always look for that. It's like, obviously, like, do you know who's sewing your garments? And do you know if those factories are certified and if they're paid fairly, but there's other layers, right? There's like, do you know who, um, who grew the cotton? Do you know who dyed the fabric? Do you know where the buttons came from? Right? That's, so that's where Askit's looking when they say like 80%, that's what they mean. They're like, they're like, well, the 20% that's missing is like, we don't know where these zippers came from exactly. Or like, it can't be traced to a T, you know? So like, yeah. And so I think that that, um, besides that being inspiring, it also, it pushes them, like they, it pushes them to, they, they are work, they do work to improve those things. So if, if it's at 60% for like a pair of jeans, they're obviously working to get that to a hundred. And so I just think that that's, um, pretty cool. And they're also uh, focused on timeless staple pieces. So definitely against the mass consumption model. And something else cool about Askit is they've been a menswear brand their entire life, but they're going to be adding women's clothes soon. So just like something kind of cool that will be coming from them. That's amazing. I mean, the transparency thing just kills me. I love it because I can say having worked as a buyer that I 
the most amount of transparency I ever had into the product I was creating was probably like 5%. You know, like I, I would buy from a vendor who knows who their factory was really and who knows if that factory was subcontracting. And that's just for the sewing. Like forget about knowing where the fabric and all of the other trims came from. Like impossible. You know, I wouldn't even know about like who made the labels that were in them. I mean, I... Once again, it would be really amazing if one of these larger fast fashion brands came out and said, hey, we actually don't know anything. Here's what we're going to do to get there, you know, but instead it's been sort of like deflect or pretend it doesn't exist at all. Um, I know, you know, when we talk about weaker forced labor, a lot of brands have come out and been like, we had no idea or like we can guarantee that there's no weaker forced labor and really... I'm more inclined to believe that they don't know than that they can guarantee it because the transparency in the supply chain is just it's it would require like doubling your staff I think to like keep an eye on it so it's really exciting when a brand takes that really seriously and to me 60% transparency is radical actually <laughs> like unheard of I really doubt Everlane knows that much despite uh you know, always showing the picture of someone who allegedly works in the factory who's having a great time. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And you're uh, like, who is that person? (laughs) Yeah. And you hit on a really good point that I want to touch on. Cause like, I know this definitely gets into the gray area, but which is, I think really important Um, with the, with the forced labor in China. um, Something interesting, like anecdote to that story is this is why it's really important that brands acknowledge when they make mistakes. Cause you're right. And like no brand is immune to it. Like it's not, no one is, yeah. And and the perfect example of that is uh, is Patagonia, right? Because Patagonia was actually uh, was actually tied to that as well. Some of the cotton that they were sourcing from, like Hong Kong, was actually being sourced, you know, from there. And uh, yeah, and they weren't it, they weren't aware of it. And obviously, when they were made aware of it, they made changes to right to ensure, or at least to try their best that that won't happen again. You know, mistakes are going to happen. Um, and 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 it's, I'm all about like letting companies like own those mistakes and make real progress. It's not just like forgive and forget, like obviously no, not in fashion because there's so much exploitation, but I definitely think we need to, we need to allow for the space for learning and growth and improvement. I've seen people be like, I'm never going to shop at Patagonia again. And I strongly disagree. Um, I think that's a mistake because Patagonia is a brand that, you know, has been around for 50 years. They're, they're, they're one of our approved brands. They do a lot of things really, really good. Um, they obviously have a commitment to sustainability and ethics as they've shown and like proven you know, mm-hmm. like they, it's important to them. They take a leadership position on it. They're also really big at this point. You know, they're not a small company anymore, but they still make mistakes. And I think, so I think we have to like give, we have to give space for that. And they, they didn't like, I, they did, like they came out with a response. Um, they were serious. You know, if they had, if they had, had, had no response or had a response that was lackluster or lacked intention, you know, obviously that would be a red flag and a point to be like, Hey, you know, should this brand still be passing our criteria? Should we still believe in them? With fashion being so complicated, the supply chains are massive. And so mistakes are going to happen. And um, yeah, it's it's about what brands do about it that matters, right? And it's about their intention um, and progress, not not just the fact that they made a mistake. Um, it's, 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 yeah, it's really like what they do about it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Especially like when we talk about anything supply chain driven, it is so complicated. It is so opaque that most brands have very, very little visibility into who made what they're selling you. And so for someone to very honestly come right out and say like, yeah, we messed up is to me 
incredible. And I and that's that's the opposite of greenwashing, right? Because greenwashing is really about making big bold statements with little to back it up that feel very unrealistic and sort of deny all the gray area that exists in the world of sustainable and ethical fashion. And so I like that makes me want to buy something from Patagonia just hearing that because that's what we need more of. That's actual radical transparency, not what Everlane's doing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You're an expert here and I think this is going to be great a great takeaway for everyone listening. What do you suggest people do to avoid greenwashing and to ensure that they're buying product that represents their values? Mm, I love that question. Yeah, I mean, I really suggest that people find and use a source that they trust. That is my that is my number one recommendation. Um, like a source like EcoStylist, and obviously, obviously, that's going to sound like a plug or like a bias, but that's really <laughs> that's really not how I mean that. The reason, yeah, the reason I say that is because you know, as you as you and I know, like this. Um, like we've spent hundreds of hours, right? And as like sustainable fashion nerds, like, you know, we love that. Um, But most people don't want to do that. No, and I don't blame them. (laughs) And and nor should they. And some, but some do. And if you do, if if that is you, like if you're like us, that's fine. Like for sure, do your own, like that's cool. You know, if that's what you like to do. But I think for most people, um, they would probably rather be doing something else with their time, um, you know, than, than digging into this stuff. So that would be my number one recommendation because of everything we talked about, because of how complicated it is, um, because of all the sources out there that you can't trust, um, unfortunately, um, I really think, you know, that's the best, that's honestly, that's the best way to go about it. Because like, because like we talked about, like, like we put out articles on like what fabrics to look for and what certifications to look for. Um, and certainly those are starting points and those are helpful. Um, but kind of like we talked about, like just, you know, like just knowing like that the company's a B Corp, for example, you know, um, isn't enough. And like fair trade certification mm-hmm. is fantastic, but so few brands have it. I mean, it's fairly new to the clothing space, right? Fair trade is not new, but mm-hmm. to clothing, it's fairly new. Um, you know, and there's tons of small brands that like, you know, maybe they own their own factory and so they're, they can't afford fair trade certification, but they're still awesome. So yeah. So that's like, for all these reasons, like I would just really recommend having, you know, a go-to resource that you trust for discovering brands and, and, and getting your information that way. Um, I think that's honestly, I think it's the best way you can, you can sift through all this noise. Um, and yeah. And something else I would just add here is, um, that I want to talk about quickly is just the, this idea of like ego perfectionism too. Right. I think it's, Mm -hmm. that's a really important point. I think to finish on is, you know, like obviously at eco stylist and, you know, in partnership with remake, we're holding brands to an incredibly high standard because this is because we believe that brands should pay people fairly. They should be transparent. They should make their clothes more sustainably. Right. Like, this is the future that we want to live in. This is what we want to see. So, um, and I think it's really important to do that as individuals. Um, we don't have to be perfect, you know, um, like if we want to be more sustainable, be more ethical um, or, you know, or support brands that are, um, you know, make, make those more conscious choices. Um, you know, it doesn't like, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be an overnight thing where like you replace your old closet. Um, you know, like I think it's just, it's all about just making better choices and those better choices add up and they don't all have to be perfect. Right. Um, like, you know, like for me, for example, like I, you know, I thrift clothes, you know, I support sustainable brands, you know, I, I practice like not buying clothes for periods of time, like getting things that are damaged, repaired instead of throwing them away. Right. Things like this. So I think, 
in the sustainable fashion journey, it's just it's all about just like making better choices when we can, and you know, it's just the right choice for you at that moment. And, and right, like like thrifting is always is a great choice if you want to do that, if you like doing that when you can. You know, I'm um, swapping, right? Like supporting sustainable brands. Um, I think it's it's not necessarily productive to compare these things, which I think is often done in, in, in these communities. Like I think what's it's better to acknowledge i think that they're all good for different reasons you know and supporting the different different ones when they make sense for us mhm mhm agreed it's a mix it's a mix right yes. because if you set yourself up going back to this idea of like black and white thinking if you set yourself up to like things are clearly wrong or right or better or worse and that you must pick one path and stick with that what happens is you fail and then you're disheartened you're discouraged and then you want to quit and we can't, we can't do that. We have to recognize that it is hard. I mean, you know, it's that whole, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. <laughs> if you really adopted that, uh, I don't know where you're going to live, what you're going to eat, how you're going to care for your pets, see a doctor, et cetera. I mean, this is one of those things that I, as a teenager, really had to uh, wrap my brain around. <laughs> I think a lot of people go through that, like, I'm, I'm going to be anti-capitalist in a really extreme way phase. And then you're like, oh, shit, like, uh, that's not actually a sustainable way of life for me, because it's too black and white. And because you live in a system in which, unfortunately, it's really challenging to be anti-capitalist. And it's also very challenging to be 100% eco-perfect all the time. Yes. No, I'm really glad you brought that up because I have had so many of those conversations, so many of those conversations about good capitalism doesn't exist. Um, it's all evil. Uh, we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't buy anything new. Um, like I've encountered so many of those conversations in these spaces and I just think they're really counterproductive. I think there's a huge opportunity here um, for us to come together and, and change the fashion industry. Thank you so much, Garrick, for taking the time to talk to me. It was so fun. And yes, I mean that. It is so fun to talk about greenwashing with someone who enjoys busting greenwashers as much as me. Please go check out Garrett's, Garrick's company, EcoStylist, at eco-stylist.com. And yes, I'll be sharing that in the show notes. You don't need to write that down right now. But you can use promo code CLOSEHORSE for 20% off any personal styling service. And I'll also be sharing that in the show notes. Basically, these are going to be some epic show notes because I'll also be including links to a bunch of the stuff Garrick and I discussed in this episode. There's so much for you to read and watch. Please go check it out. Before I wrap this all up, I hope you're not tired of listening to my voice yet. Hopefully you took my advice at the beginning and you've been pacing yourself. Anyway, let's recap the signs of greenwashing. First off, using words that just don't mean very much because they aren't measurable, but they sure do appeal to our desire to make the best decisions. This includes words like natural, green, eco-friendly, even organic, to be honest, when we talk about cotton, even if the cotton or other fiber is certified organic, that doesn't mean it wasn't harvested by forced labor or shipped via air or dyed with toxic chemicals. Organic cotton is not a license to shop till you drop. When we talk about the ways brands ethical wash their products, I don't know if that's the formal term, that's what I'm calling it. When they ethical wash, they'll use phrases like fair wage, which... I don't need to tell you the word fair is the most 
unmeasurable adjective one could use to describe someone's pay. I have definitely felt as if I was not being paid fairly at certain jobs. It definitely does not mean the same thing as a living wage, which is what you want to see. Or how about family-owned factory? That also means nothing because most factories are family-owned businesses. Like if you work in the industry long enough, you start to see the children of the factory owners opening their own factories. Because as a reminder, I know I don't really need to remind you because most of you have been listening to the show for a long time. Think about the hundreds of hours we've spent together. Anyway, just as a reminder, most companies do not own their factories. They are kind of more like small businesses, these factories themselves. So don't let the term family-owned factory make you reach for your wallet. The number one sign of greenwashing, the thing that makes all the alarms go off for me, is words that don't mean very much because they aren't measurable. Okay, another way that retailers and brands greenwash us is by appealing to our love of animals. And you know that I am a cat lady, but I love all animals so much. Can't look at a photo of an animal without being like, oh, and maybe tearing up a little bit because that's how much I love animals. And so I have fallen for this love of animal washing. We need a better name there. So many times. You know, I don't want leather clothing. I certainly wouldn't go out and buy a new fur coat, but so-called vegan alternatives like faux leather and faux fur are actually environmental nightmares. And when I didn't know that, I would buy these things. That was what I would search for, right? But now I know, and you know too, because as we've mentioned, we've spent a lot of time together, that neither of these options are biodegradable. They are quite literally plastics, just in a different format, if you will, meaning fossil fuels are used to create them both as an integral ingredient and as part of the energy to fuel the process to create them. Faux fur sheds little microplastics that get into our water, air, and soil with everywhere, with every use. Neither of these materials are sustainable. Yes, I know. Don't at me, bro. Is that what people say? I know that there are new biodegradable faux leathers in development, specifically those made of mushrooms, and they are coming. But actually, I learned this week that the mushroom leather company has an exclusive contract with Hermes. So most of us are not getting access to mushroom leather anytime soon. And all of the other ones, as I talked about with Garrick, like Pina Tex and the cactus leather and apple leather and all of these other things actually contain plastics. And the organic element, whether that's a cactus or an apple, are a very small part of the overall material. So it's effectively greenwashing even just that it exists. And then, of course, it's greenwashed on top of that. Maybe all of this will change down the road. But even if a miraculous, non-toxic, biodegradable version of faux leather and fur are created, it still doesn't mean we should overconsume them in the first place. Another example of this cute and fluffy greenwashing, maybe I like that fluffy washing. I'm not really sure. It's it's Shein's Shein Cares for Animals campaign, which was literally a weird collection of clothing that had some animals on it with a $300,000 pledge to animal-related charities. 
I don't even know where to start here. First off, $300,000 is not even enough money to be called a drop in the bucket for Sheehan's finances. But I also just say that if Sheehan cared about animals at all, it would be working to protect the planet that these animals live on. And instead, Sheehan is opting to sell us as much stuff as possible as often as possible, which wastes tons of resources like water and energy. I can't even imagine the environmental impact of manufacturing all those synthetic fabrics and then dyeing them and shipping all this stuff and wrapping in plastic. Anyway, Sheehan doesn't care about animals. So be aware that our love of animals is often exploited by retailers as a means of greenwashing. Another way that brands greenwash us into shopping is they brag about certifications and sustainability programs that don't really amount to much when you really start to read about them. I mean, some are just better than others. Various programs may lack transparency, have limited ambitions, use confusing measurements like Garrick was talking about. They may have been created by the industry themselves with no outsider actually vetting all of that. Unfortunately, it's up to you to look into all of these programs. And I know it sucks. You shouldn't have to do that. It should be easy. But guess what? Sometimes doing the right thing is hard. Don't be mad at me. Be mad at the brands that have concocted all of these elaborate ways to trick you and me. My advice here is just Google the name of the certification or program and then add greenwashing at the end. And that usually gets me to the truth pretty fast. Another way brands greenwash and confuse you is what Greenpeace calls ad bluster, which I talked about with Garrick. This means using ads and PR like gushing blog posts and influencers posting on the gram to exaggerate a green thing that this brand did. The brand may even spend more money bragging about their eco-friendly behavior than they actually spend on whatever this good deed is that they did. I know it feels overwhelming to have to be on the lookout for all of this. It feels unfair. It, it is unfair. If it makes you angry, that's okay. It's okay to be angry here. I know that I am. I don't want to feel like I've been taken advantage of, that my innate goodness is exploited into a marketing message, but that is what's happening here. You're smart. I'm smart. This is a smart, capable community, and we have the tools to identify and call out greenwashing and educate those around us. So here are some things you can do. Number one, read the label and read all the details. If I encounter a fabric that I don't know, I Google its name along with greenwashing. Seriously, just pair anything with greenwashing and you'll get the answer. Number two, Avoid vague words that have no measurable meaning, like natural, green, eco-friendly. If it makes your heart feel warm and fuzzy, take a moment and ask yourself what that word really means. Number three, research certifications and organizations that brands throw out. Just Google the name of the certification followed by the word greenwashing. Number four, background check retailers and brands. Use Good On You or Remake's Transparency Report. I, I'm i extra, so I actually read Glassdoor reviews too because I don't want to give my money to anyone who's terrible to their employees. You can also just make it even easier for yourself by using a shopping platform like EcoStylist that already does it for you. 
Number five, ask questions of retailers and brands. Are you confused about a product? Just ask. I know it feels weird. You think you're being a troll. You're not. They want your money. Make them work for it, right? Well, that's a list. I feel like that's a lot of work right there. But I personally love a list because it helps me narrow my focus and keep me on track. The last thing I'm going to add here before I do the usual please rate and review if you like this podcast spiel is this. I don't know if you caught this in the beginning, but this is freaking episode 95. Yes, I've actually made more than 100 episodes of Close Horse when you count all of the mini-sodes and the Patreon-exclusive episodes. So as you can imagine, an official episode 100 feels momentous. If you've been listening since the beginning, we have spent so much time together. (laughs) It's kind of wild, actually. (laughs) Close Horse would not be approaching episode 100 without its community, without all of you. I don't know if I would quite say that Close Horse is successful per se, but the success it does have is thanks to all of you. So I would like to hear from all of you for episode 100. Do you have a favorite segment that you think new listeners should hear or that maybe you would like to hear again? A favorite guest you would like to hear an update from? Maybe a story about how Close Horse has changed you and the way you look at things. Please, Reach out via the Close Horse hotline or send me a voice memo that you've created using your phone or computer. You can find all of that contact info in the show notes. A 100th episode without all of you is like a Sunday without whipped cream. Tragic, right? It's like a cat that just doesn't want to lay on your computer when you're trying to work. I mean, it's just unnatural. So please reach out to me. Tell me what you would like the 100th episode to be. Thanks for listening to this episode of Close Horse, researched, written, recorded, and edited by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. And of course, please tell a friend. And if you would like to support my work here on Close Horse, please consider becoming a patron. You can learn more at patreon.com slash closehorsepodcast. You can also make a one-time contribution via Venmo to at crystal underscore visions. Thanks as always to Justin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye.